Well, welcome to Friends Church. We're so glad that you're here worshiping with us on this holiday weekend. I know there's a lot of other places that you could be, a lot of other things that you could be doing, and maybe you'll be doing those pretty soon. But we're glad that you're here, gathered with us in, in worship this morning. I'm Steve. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. And uh, just pleased to be sharing with you, especially as I thought about this last message in our series, how, how appropriate it is that the last message uh, on God at work be during uh, Labor Day weekend as we celebrate the American worker and the accomplishments of the American worker. In fact, it made me think about my work history. And maybe over the last few weeks that we've been sharing this God at work, you've been thinking about your history and, and the work that you've done. And I was thinking all the way back to my, what I call my first real job. And you know what a first real job is? It's the job that you have to show up. You have to show up, you get paid, you get maybe benefits and hopefully vacation. You know, that was my first real job. And it was May 1981. I had just come off the campus of what was then Malone College, now Malone University, with degrees in accounting and business administration, ready to start my career. And I was fortunate enough to be able to start with the international accounting firm, then of Ernst & Winnie, now Ernst & Young. Hung around there for seven years, and it was seven really fun years. I tell you, I, I loved everything about the firm. It's a great firm, and it was uh, a great place to start a career. I loved the work I did, uh, and then I loved the clients we served, and I really loved the people that I worked with, great people, whether they were the administrative staff uh, or the staff or my peers or my bosses, even the partners. They just were, they were just were wonderful people to work with. Uh, they were people, though, they, they were people that worked hard. They worked hard, they played hard, and they partied even harder. And it was an interesting environment to be in, uh, but yet it was a challenging and fun environment to be in. And some of the things I remember, especially going all the way back, 1981, that seems like years and years and years ago, and it is. But uh, I was thinking back to some of the early days and the training that I got. One of the things when you work for an, at a large firm and a firm like that, you get great training. Right off the bat, they hit you with training. And, and part of it was to bring us together and to treat us how to be an Ernst & Winnie employee. You dress the part. And you act the part and you, you take care of clients. And you take care of clients and you do it as well as you can because the last thing we want is an unhappy client. The last thing you want is a client going out and starting to look for another accounting firm. And so we were trained on how to make our clients happy. And one thing I remember specifically being told is we don't want to make our clients uncomfortable or angry, so we stay away from topics that are controversial or they may have some, some own strong opinions on. And so we were told you were to avoid two topics. The first one was politics. And the second one was, can you guess? Religion. There were two things you just did not talk about. And so here I was, a fresh 22-year-old Christ follower out of Malone University, Malone College, and wondering, how am I going to fit my worldview, my Christian worldview, into this secular worldview that I'm, I'm now immersed in? And how can I do that, maintain my, my identity, maintain my testimony, but yet not say anything? 
30 some years ago, that may not have been, or that may have been kind of unusual. I don't think that's maybe as unusual today. In fact, if you're a school teacher, you may be told there are certain things, and probably told, especially if you are in a public school, certain things you can say and certain things you don't talk about. If you're in a shop or even in an office, there may be written rules, but there may also be unwritten rules. There are certain things we just don't talk about here. We don't want to push your opinion on anybody else, or we don't want to uh, offend anybody. And so there's certain things you do not talk about. Maybe it's in your family. I know families who, when they get together for reunions or Christmas or those type of things, the bigger family, there are topics you don't talk about. You don't want to start World War III, and religion may be one of those. Especially if you've been saved and you walk into a, into a family of non-Christians or of a different tradition. Maybe you're a student here this morning, and you're saying, I can't go home to my parents, and I can't say, hey, I've got something to tell you what Christ has done for me, because they'll shut me down. Or maybe you're an individual and your spouse is sitting at home. And you say, how can I live out the Christian life when they don't want to hear it? When I start to bring it up and they say no. Well, the good news is not all communication necessarily is words. In fact, some of the greatest sermons ever preached have been sermons where a word was not spoken. You can maybe think of some. I can. But there's one today we're going to look at in Luke chapter 7. But before we go there, before you go to Luke chapter 7, we need to understand the context of this passage. The context of where Jesus is in his ministry. If you started flipping through, you know Luke chapter 2 is the Christmas story and then you get into some other stories of Jesus' childhood. But about chapter 4, you start to pick up Jesus in his ministry and you start to see a ministry that is starting to ramp up. His popularity is starting to grow and people are starting to take notice of who this guy is. He's in the northern part of Israel right now. He's, he's up in his home area of, of, of Nazareth, of Galilee, and, and he's ministering there and he's just building a foundation for his ministry. But his popularity and his notoriety was already pretty widely known. In fact, people were coming up even from Jerusalem in the south to check him out, say, who is this guy? And why was he so popular? Well, he was an amazing teacher. An amazing teacher. And he was visiting the synagogues and he was going out and teaching and he was preaching and he was talking about loving enemies and doing all this kind of stuff. And, and people were going, wow, that's pretty cool. But it wasn't just that. You start reading chapter 4, 5, 6, 7 of Luke, you see story after story of a story of amazing things happening. You see stories of Demon-possessed people being freed. That's pretty cool. You start reading there and you see stories of deaf people hearing. You see stories of blind people seeing. You see stories of lame people walking again. Paralyzed, now walking. You see stories of sick people healed. And earlier in chapter 7 of Luke, you actually see a story of a dead person raised. Amazing. You don't need Twitter and Facebook and all that for that news to get out. <laughs> the rumors, the stories, people were saying, you got to come check out this guy. 
You've got to see what he's about. You've got to hear him. You've got to check. I don't know if he's a, a miracle worker or what. In fact, that was the first thing they started doing. They started saying, who is he? We've got to figure out who he is. In fact, is he a miracle worker? Is he a trickster, a magician? Is he from God? Is he a prophet? In fact, in chapter 7, when he raised the person from the dead, the young boy, they said, whoa, this must be a great prophet. So the, his notoriety was building. But other people were starting to form opinions too. <clears throat> the religious leaders. <laughs> they were starting to form their opinions of Jesus. They saw a different side. They looked a little deeper in their opinion. They saw a man laying on a, on a rug and Jesus go over and say, get up and walk. And they saw that and it bothered them. But it didn't bother them as much as what he said afterwards. When he said, your sins are forgiven. So the religious leaders would go and they'd get their law and they'd go, oh, forgiveness of sins. <laughs> Only God can do that. Only God can do that. Blasphemer. That's you. Then a couple days later, Jesus and his disciples would be walking through a grain field on the Sabbath. And they walked by and they were hungry. And so they'd pick the grain and they would eat it. That's breaking the law. Check it out. You don't work on the, on the Sabbath. That's a no-no. And so they look at him and say, lawbreaker, lawbreaker. Blasphemer, lawbreaker. And then, and then the coup de grace. Look at the people he hangs around with. Look at the people he's associating with. Tax collectors, sinners. Look at him at these parties. Drunkard. Glutton. Partier. That's you. That's not God. And so we have this setting of everybody's checking out Jesus. Who is he? What's he up to? What's his story? And so we come to this chapter in this passage in Luke, chapter 7. These verses 36 through 39, we've, we've kind of laid out the background, but now we are stepping right into the middle of an incredible drama. Of an incredible drama. One of these religious leaders, one of these guys who's checking Jesus out, I'm not sure about him, has invited Jesus to his house. And the setting is in verses 36 through 39. Let's look at the setting of what's going on here. Verse 36. Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. He went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them out with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is. That she is a sinner. Get the drama. Here's everybody checking out Jesus. And Jesus happens to be in town. And maybe the lead, maybe the lead Pharisee or one of the real religious leaders in the town says, 
I want to have this guy in my house. You know, kind of like if a popular guy was coming to Willoughby Hills, a popular entertainer or something, or, or, or a religious leader, or even a politician, we, we'd want to hear from him. And we want to invite him in, and, and, and the prestigious people get to have them in their homes. And so they, the Pharisee says, I want Jesus in my house. It says he invited him. It was most likely that Jesus had been teaching in the, in the synagogues that day. He'd probably been teaching and preaching, and, and he was offered a common courtesy, offered, give, often given to speakers, come to my house, let's relax, let's eat, and by the way, let's talk. Let's talk about this thing about loving your neighbors and loving your enemies, and let's talk about what authority you do these miracles, and who you really are, and where you came from, and what's your agenda. Let's talk about those things. So the, the, the Pharisee invites him in, and, and it says he brought him into his house. But this would not have just been the Pharisee. In fact, you see in this story that there are other people starting to come around. And it would have been very common in this day and age. The, the doors would have opened up and this would become more of an open courtyard type. There probably was a courtyard in the middle of the house. And when the important people came, you wanted other people to be there too. You would invite the community and say, anybody who wants to come and watch us and listen, you're welcome. And so people would come and they would press against the walls and they would real quietly sit, not saying a word. And they would listen to what was going on. They would listen to the back and forth, the bantering between the Pharisee and Jesus. They would say, what does the teacher have for us? Let me hear. And so they would be there. And it's also very common that even the crumbs and the leftovers from the meal would be out, left for people. And some of the, some of the people who had no uh, food, no money, no hope would come and they would, they would come and take food from this occasion. And so Jesus had been invited in. And they were there and you see, this, you see it at lunch being served and they're talking. And it says they reclined at the table. Now, we've got to understand this. This isn't like sitting at the table like we would do. We would pull up a chair and we'd have the table here and we'd, we'd eat our food. Well, when we do that, if, if there's a table, you notice your feet are only about three to four feet, three feet usually from the, food, the table. So your feet are fairly close. Well, in this day and age and in this society, your feet were the dirty part. They were the part that, you know, were uncovered and were drugging through the dirt and you kept them as far away from the table as you could. And so they would have a table that would be very low and a couch on the floor, almost like a mattress, and they would recline and they would lay down, put their elbow up on the table and they recline while they're eating and talking so that their feet would extend out from the table just parallel and so their feet would be maybe five, six feet depending on how tall you were they would be that far from the table now every time I think about this I always think of the times I've tried to eat laying down the food never seems to go down right, you know. <laughs> I, I got to sit up and they had to go. I don't know how they did it, but they did it. And, they, and the food went down and they talked and they had it and these people would sit around and they would listen and so we have this story and we have this scenario and we have Jesus there and everything is as it should be. The teacher is talking. The audience is listening. The exchanges are happening. When all of a sudden, in the middle of this drama, a woman comes in. The Bible tells us right off the bat, she's a sinner. The sinner probably meant she was a um, lady of the evening, a woman of the streets, a harlot, a prostitute. Everything that we have would indicate that at a minimum, she was very sexually promiscuous. A lady who had been looked down on, a lady who was 
used to getting snubbed at. A lady who people would walk and keep their children away from and walk around. It wouldn't have been totally unusual for her to be here because maybe she needed some of the food. But it was unlikely the lady of this nature would show up and be accepted. The Bible tells us that she came up behind Jesus. And if you can imagine Jesus laying with his arm on his on his the table and, and resting his head and coming up behind. And the Bible tells us she started weeping. Not just little tears, not just I'm sad, you know. These are, I am devastated. These are sobs because there had to be enough tears that it says she actually washed his feet with her tears. The Bible tells us she was behind Jesus and she, she was down there just bawling and she said crying and bawling, washing her, his feet with her tears. And then the Bible tells us she took her hair and she, used, she must not have been prepared. This, this outpouring of emotion must not have been expected because she didn't bring water and she didn't bring a towel. So she used what she has and she gets her hair and she dries his feet with those. Which also gives us a little bit of insight into her character. A real woman, a proper woman, would have had her hair covered and up. Her hair was down. The signs of a very promiscuous individual. She's taking her hair and she's drying Jesus' feet with them. And then it says she kissed his feet. She's kissing his feet and, and sobbing and drying and kissing and sobbing and drying. And then it says she took the perfume she had with her. The perfume, most likely, was a tool of her trade. How do you attract men? You smell good. It was probably something she carried with her. And she took it out. She took the perfume that she would use in her business. And she pours it on Jesus' feet. And everyone, everyone in that room was speechless. Everyone was speechless. She couldn't say a word. No one came running saying, stop! We don't do this here. The only thing the Bible tells us was Simon, the host, who the person you think would have stepped up and said something, it says, had said to himself, uh-uh. <laughs> now, I'm still trying to figure out how, who this Jesus is, but I can tell you one thing. He is not a prophet. He cannot be a prophet because if he was a prophet, he would know who is touching him. He would know what kind of person she is and that she is a sinner. That's the setting. This is the setting we see Jesus in. The one whose notoriety has gone out is now being looked at and people are waiting to see how he responds. Well, he responds with a parable, a story. Let's look at it. Verse 40. Jesus answered him. Well, that's kind of interesting. Uh, it says Simon thought to himself. But Jesus answered him. Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. 
And Jesus went on. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and another 50. Neither one of them had money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both of them. Now, which one of them do you think would love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Of all Jesus' parables, I think this, some of them are easy to understand, some are a little harder. This one, this one needs no interpretation, does it? He says, he says, here it is, here's the deal. You go to a bank, two people owe money to a bank. It doesn't make any difference how much it is. One, one owes ten times more than the other. Ten times more than the other. The bank says, forget it, you don't have to pay. Who's going to love that banker more? And it's obvious. This one's a no-brainer. You sit back and you say, well, my goodness, it's got to be the one who is forgiven more. But Simon, still trying to figure out Jesus, still not sure, is this a trick question? <laughs> is he hiding some facts from me? Is there something here I don't know that I should know? Because he looks at him and he says, well, I suppose, you suppose? <laughs> I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. These are the only words we see Simon speak here. Other than this answer to Jesus, he's silent. And we hear him and we hear this questioning. Again, who are you, Jesus? I'm not sure. I suppose, I suppose this. What Jesus was telling Simon, what he's telling us through here, and what we see is this woman was not the only one seeking Jesus that day. There were two people seeking Jesus. Just as there are two debtors in this parable. There were two people that needed Jesus that day. And what Jesus is about to tell Simon is, Simon, your actions spoke just as loudly if not more so than this woman's. Verse 44. Then he turned toward the woman. Jesus turned toward the woman. The first time he has even looked at her. She's been behind him. And he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, Your Sins are forgiven. Now it is Simon who's speechless. He has no answer to Jesus. Jesus has just exposed him for his hypocrisy. Jesus has just said, Simon, your actions here have spoken. Look what she's done. And yet you would not offer me even the most common courtesies. You didn't even offer me water. 
I didn't expect you to wash my feet, but at least you could have offered water. Look what this lady has done. You know the law. Yes, you know the law, but you know nothing of the overwhelming love of God that this woman knows. Simon, don't you understand who I am? She is leaving with her sins forgiven. And you're carrying them around. She's not said a word, but she has spoken loudly. Her actions shouted to us. I don't know what Simon's thinking right now, but I know what I would be thinking. What did I miss? Verse 47, it says that she had a great love and it was shown. That love shown, demonstrated what had taken place in her heart. He said this love was expressed because she was forgiven and forgiven much. The King James Version and some earlier versions, other versions of the Bible, instead of saying she had great love, they said she loved much. I like that. And my question this morning, when Jesus looks at you, and when he looks at me, what do you love much? And what do your actions betray or reveal about what you love? In his book, Every Good Endeavor, Tim Keller writes this. He says, Our work reveals our idols. Our work reveals our idols. And what he's saying in, in his book, and as you read through there, is the things that we or become evident about us in our workplace, and I would add in our homes, in our schools, reveal what we love. And when people look at you in your workplace and they say, okay, what do you love? Um, you know it's unusual to be wearing a suit uh, preaching, at least in most places nowadays. And I got in red, it's unusual to wear it. Two days in a row, I had a wedding yesterday. But when I started in 1981, this was the expected attire, and it was especially expected because um, of what it represented. And it represented power, it represented prestige, it represented authority, and the navy blue suit, the white shirt, and either yellow or red tie was what I was supposed to wear. And it became... A part of me. I was so glad when Casual Fridays made her appearance. And finally, uh, a little more relaxed. And we were able to take them off and we were able to say, you know, I'm not going to be defined by what I wear. I'm not going to be defined by what people see in me that I don't want them to see. I, you know, it's not power. It's not prestige. It's not status. It's not approval. 
that I love much? It's not money that I love much. Is it possessions that we love much? Is it romance that we love much? Is it comfort that we love much? Is it pleasure? Is it sex? Is it control? What is it we love much? The list goes on and on and on. And, and Keller says our work reveals those idols. In fact, he goes on and he says that our personal idols, our personal idols profoundly drive and shape our behavior, including our work. What's your idol? What is it that you say, I'm going to worship, I'm going to serve, and what is it? For Simon, it was the rule book. It was the laws. He said, this is my way to God. The woman found a better way. The woman said, I won't have any idols. I'm going directly to Christ. Exodus 23, that's why it says, the first of the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. Martin Luther defined idolatry as looking to some created thing to give you what only God can give you. She knew only God could meet her need, this woman. Simon had not realized that. When we go to work and we go through our days, what is it? And who is it that they would say, oh, he loves, oh, he loves them. He, he loves power, you know that. Oh, he loves possessions. Oh, wow, she loves authority. Is that what people were saying? Or are they saying us and saying, no, no, look at his love. Look at his love. Oh, he loves Christ. He loves Jesus. She loves Jesus. Do they see that in your life? Do they see that in my life? There's always, though, there's always a fallout. We close with that in verses 49 and 50. The fallout, the end of this drama. Verse 49, the other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. The woman left forgiven. The woman left forgiven. Simon and the others left wondering. And it's the question we need to answer. It's a question they need to answer. It's a question the whole world needs to answer is, who is he? Who is he? Is he the magic man? Is he the prophet? Is he the blasphemer? Is he the miracle worker? Is he a nut? Who is he? Who is he? You see, Simon had no idea who he was dealing with. He had no idea who was in his room. In fact, in Simon's view, in Simon's view, the real scandal was the woman touching Jesus. That was his scandal. The, this woman, this sinner, this prostitute would reach out and touch a religious person a prophet, even a teacher. That's a scandal. But the real scandal was not the woman touching Jesus. The real scandal is always Jesus touching the woman. The real scandal is Jesus reaching down and touching you and me. Of Jesus reaching down and getting into the mud and mire and muck of it and coming from the heavens and saying, I am here for you. And that woman understood that Jesus was reaching down and touching her as she was touching him. Simon didn't understand anything about Christ. He didn't understand 
the sermon that Christ was preaching and going to preach. In fact, Christ was going to later preach the greatest sermon ever preached without words. Isaiah 53, 7 says, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Speechless. The greatest sermon ever preached. The dean of the Duke University Chapel, Luke Powery, says it this way, Jesus' body spoke when Jesus' body broke. His body cried out. It screamed to us from the cross without ever saying a word. When Christ died on the cross, he was shouting his love to us. He was shouting his love to us. We started by asking, what do you say when someone says, you can't talk about Christ? What do you do when you're not allowed to speak? Or the occasion isn't right? We see in this story, and we see through the life of this lady, we see through the life of Simon, and we especially see through the life of Jesus, that sometimes actions speak louder than words. And they reveal to us who we love. Jesus' actions revealed that he loves you with an incredible love. His actions to this woman revealed he loved her with an incredible love. Her action in response said, Lord, I love you. When people look at you, do they say, ah, he loves the Lord, he loves Christ. Or are they saying, ah, he loves power, he loves money, she loves authority. What is it that your actions reveal? What would people say that you love much? This morning as you go, I want you to just think about that. What do people say that I love much? If they just watched me. If they just watched me. If they saw me cut a deal with a little bit of dishonesty, what would they say? If they saw me lying to somebody, what would they say that tells me I love? If they saw me not just being um, totally open with maybe a employee or a client, what does it say about me and who I love and what I love? We closed our worship time earlier with one of my favorite hymns. And it said this, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain, everything that I want, all those idols out there, all that money, all that fame, all that power, my richest gain, all of that, I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Second verse, forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, but in the Christ, in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, all those things that whisper in my ears, I sacrifice them to his blood. And it closes, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. He said, if I owned everything, if I had it all, all the power, all the authority, all the possessions, it would be too little a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Do people see us as sold out, loving Christ? Do you love him this morning? 
If not, have you experienced the love of Him through the cross? Let's pray. Lord, I thank You this morning for Your Word. We thank You for this drama that just comes to life to us thousands of years later. But Lord, don't let the message of that be lost on us. Father, as we go and we let our lives speak to people, I pray, Lord, that we would be people who would speak volumes of who you are and your great love for us, that you have forgiven us. And Lord, when people see us, when they interact with us, when they watch us, that they would see hearts of love and mercy and grace. They would see people whose lives have been changed, that have been saturated by you. And Lord, may they hear a sermon preached without us ever saying a word. And Lord, when we're asked and free to speak, give us boldness to share the goodness that you've given us. The hope of the cross. In Christ's name, amen.